0: Open Outspoken. It's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Woods. For this episode, I'm coming to you live from the American Academy of Ophthalmology meeting in Chicago. Listen as I sit down with a few experts to discuss the latest issues in the field. I'll talk to Dr. David Goldman and John Hovanesian about the innovations in IOL well designs and hot topics in ophthalmology. From MIGS to practice management to private equity, we've got it all covered. So with that, let's hear from our guests.
1: Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast produced by Bryn Communications and supported by advertising from Alcon. For a full listing of podcasts for eye care professionals, go to itube.net forward slash podcasts. That's itube, E-Y-E-T-U-B-E dot net. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz with another
0: episode of Ophthalmology Off The Grid. Today we have Dr. John Uh John and I have known each other for quite a while. i have gotten to know each other more uh, recently through some meetings and some other uh, opportunities. Uh, as it turns out, I I met John when I was still a, a chief resident at UK at my very first academy meeting a few you know many many years ago and uh, have really enjoyed all my interactions with him uh, since that time. So uh, with that uh, opening statement, John, thanks for coming on and sharing some of your time here at academy with us.
2: Thank you, and uh, and look at you now with uh, your own podcast that's uh, I am a listener and uh, terrifically fond of.
0: Well, I really appreciate that. I, th- I always, always joke that you know, my only job is finding interesting people to say interesting things. I, you know, so <laughs> here you are, and I'm really interested to know. Um, I've got so many things I want to ask you. But um, first off, tell us just a little bit about your practice, where you're at, what you're doing, and kind of uh, the flavor of, of your practice.
2: Well, I'm part of a, I'm really fortunate to be part of a terrific practice of about 15 doctors now in Southern California. We're specifically in Orange County, very near the sort of the epicenter of uh, the Silicon Valley of eye care. Uh, We're in Laguna Hills, which is near Irvine, and uh, we uh, have. Pretty much all the subspecialties in ophthalmology covered, uh, three offices, and with expansion plans we have, we're looking to add to those and certainly add to the number of doctors, and it's a really exciting time in ophthalmology, and I could not be with a group of better people, and of course, that makes all the difference, doesn't it?
0: Absolutely, and uh, we actually just realized that we're both Michigan guys, so we both grew up in Michigan, and you attended the University of Michigan, Go Blue, Um, we're hoping for our first victory over that team down south soon in football <laughs> right. um so how did a guy from michigan make his way out to southern california what's the story
2: yeah i, I had uh, trained in michigan i was a, a residency at henry ford after med school at michigan and then uh, did a fellowship at ucla at jules stein uh, um, back in '97 to '99, and of course, uh, as so often happens, I, I met my wife during that time of my life, and she's uh, born in Southern California. And somebody once told me that uh, you know, if you want to know where you're going to live when you quote grow up, it's it'll be very similar to where your wife was born or where she grew up, right? So yeah. that's the case. We now live in Orange County, which is similar to LA, and uh, and have three kids and you know, a life, a very busy one.
0: <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's, it's probably not too hard to convince someone from, uh, from, from Michigan to, uh, to, to reside in California after you've spent a number of years, uh, you know, slugging it yeah. out winters, those winters. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and your statement is ac- absolutely right. You know, my wife is from Kentucky and I am now from Kentucky. So, uh, that's fantastic. <laughs> So uh, I wanted, you don't have the accent yet. Yeah, so, uh, you know it hasn't really rubbed <laughs> off totally. But um, one thing I really am curious and have been really looking forward to talk to you about is the, is MD backline. Um, I know a little bit about it, probably just enough to be dangerous and, and misrepresented. <laughs> so I don't want to get into what I think it is. And having you here, I'd really love um, for you to give us a little bit of an idea of of what MD backline is, but also unpack. You know, where was the unmet need? How did you come up with this idea, and how did you develop it? So I always find those stories to be really interesting.
2: Yeah, well, so MD Backline is a, a, an online uh, system that automates uh, conversations with patients for doctors uh, so that we can learn uh, how patients are doing, and we can also share educational material that's very specific to their need. And it was kind of born out of a, a need that I saw as a doctor that uh, is, you know, 10 years ago. But is even more uh, a problem today that we just don't have enough time for each patient. Uh, we treat conditions uh, like our cataract surgery patients. We treat conditions like dry eye, like glaucoma, where you know we—if you think about it—how much better could our patient do if we had unlimited time to talk with them about all the nuances to their care? Well, we don't have that time, but it doesn't take too much to. Put together a system that that can have a logical conversation with a patient, and I don't mean like a chat bot, but uh, you know, structured uh, conversation with uh, branching logic that asks patients some simple questions that's uh, sort of condition specific, and then gives them in real time feedback and information about them. This is particularly valuable for us in premium lenses because we know that. Across the country, 80% of patients who go through cataract surgery, if they understood uh, what premium lens uh, options are, they would be interested. But as it turns out, across the country, only 12%, uh, far less than 80%, uh, actually choose premium lenses. And we think part of the reason for that is that uh, we as doctors don't have enough time to properly educate patients. So we're now reaching out to patients before they come in for their cataract consult to share some general information about... Um, cataract uh, uh, options when they go through surgery and so that when they get to the office it's not a frightening conversation about uh, you know oh my goodness I need surgery and so I have to learn all about that plus there's this added cost option so patients are better prepared they ask better questions at their consult and we did some a study on five physicians over a 10-month period looking at premium lens adoption And those five docs went from about 22% adoption rate of premium lenses to 36%. So more than a 50% increase in their adoption over a 10-month period, which was really meaningful for those patients. They're getting better uh, technology, better vision than they might have otherwise. The doctors are doing more advanced
0: surgery and have a little better income stream. Not and, a little better, and, actually, and, and, better. and less chair time, I assume, because, right. you know, I, I think that's fantastic. Yesterday, I was giving it again, I was giving a talk at OIS, and um, one of one of the things I was saying is patients have a really hard time connecting their visual needs to a lens choice. Yeah. You know, and when we talk about distance vision, if someone is nearsighted, naturally they think, "Well, fantastic! I I would love to have distance vision." Not really understanding that that means they're giving up their near vision if they choose a monofocal lens. Right. And and I can't tell you the you know the the I guess earlier in my years as I was still learning some of these lessons the hard way, you know, I w- I had a patient I still remember, and and uh, she was twenty twenty uncorrected. And I was—I look at the chart. I walk in, you know, ready for the hero treatment. You know, I'm ready to get a yep. big hug. Yeah. And she's got her, you know, got her arms folded and legs crossed and looking at me. And and I'm I'm kind of taken aback by this. And and she's like, I can't see. Right? What happened? I, I can't see. Yeah. And, and what she did when when she said that was she took her hand to her reading distance and said, I can't see, at like an exclamation point. And you know, I tried to. I tried to um, still get that hero true. I said, No, no, no. You're you're 2020. You can see distance. Isn't this great? And she said, Yeah, that that's fine. I don't. I don't care about that. I, but I can't see. Yeah, you told me I have that. You didn't tell me you right. take something away, right? Right. And so it is. There is such a gap in communication, um, partly because of the time issue, and that's exactly what you've identified. But there's also this issue of when you forgot what it was like not to understand optics, it's really hard to have a conversation with someone who doesn't have optics because you are so far. It's called the curse of knowledge. There's, you know, there's some books written on this, but once you have the knowledge, you forget what it was like not to. So we, we can speak in jargon. We can speak in terms that patients don't understand. And then when we're trying to have a conversation, it's going to dramatically impact the quality of their vision, the quality of the rest of their life it is, I mean, we're just speaking two different languages so many times. And it sounds like this is an opportunity for physicians and patients to kind of get on the same page.
2: You're exactly right. You know, we have to remember that uh, if you want everyone to understand something, if it's a written word or even spoken word, you you have to think about fifth grade vocabulary, um, right. because uh, otherwise you're going to lose some people. We have to dismiss technical terms and help people understand it, you know, from the paradigm that they're used to. And you gave a perfect example of a you know a myopic patient who assumes that she will forever have reading vision without glasses. And, you know, that affects putting on makeup and so many different activities that you're really meaningfully affecting their life. So that's that's one of the things that we absolutely do is begin with uh, what is the patient used to, what's important to them, and then kind of tailor a solution to them. And it's really not about selling. Uh, we've learned with premium lens implants that you don't people don't want to be sold to but they do want to buy that's right they they want to know what the opportunities are what the costs are they want to know a little bit about what other patients have to say and we we have built in uh, almost like amazon reviews actually comments from hundreds of other patients who've chosen these lenses and exactly what they think so that they can see with their own um, you know their own eyes what uh what the opportunity is and then patients are prepared to make a great decision for their future
0: so how can physicians, if they're interested in this, how do they get more information? I assume this is something that they can find online.
2: Yeah, mdbackline.com is uh, um, the website address as well and can be, uh, there's a contact us link there to, uh, to get in touch. And uh, we, we certainly are always looking to help more practices to do better.
0: Well, that sounds fantastic. So I want to dive in a little bit um, talking, we're talking about cataract, refractive outcomes, Patient expectations, you know, these are always themes that seem to sort of, they they recycle, they're always top of mind, we're always trying to figure out, you know, is it the conversation, do we need to change the conversation, do we need to change the technology, do we need to change our lens calculations, and it sort of seems to be this this rotating um, wheel that we're always trying to figure out where where are we missing and how can we do better. So, so let's put the patient uh, conversation aside right now. It sounds like MD Backline has a, a great solution. There's, I think, some other technologies that are sort of approaching that. Um, let's talk a little bit about either biometry or lenses. Where do you feel like we're at right now? What, what is exciting you in your practice about what you're able to offer? And I, I ask, you know, I, this, this question kind of keeps coming up 10 years from now. Where where do you where are you hoping we're gonna get to where this conversation maybe changes a bit down the road? Yeah, you know, it's,
2: it, if you look at the big picture goals we should have as an industry, I think one of them that we really have to get serious about is much more precision uh, in refractive cataract surgery. Uh, when you think about it, what's the difference between a patient in your practice who is, uh, you know. Uh, Minus a quarter, minus fifty, axis, whatever. Uh, who it has what we'd call a maybe negligible or very small amount of refractive error, versus one who's plano-sphere. And has a healthy eye. I mean, you are you get the hero treatment from that's the fresh right. news planosphere. There is a dramatically higher level of satisfaction among those patients when you really nail it. And you know, for most of us, we do pretty well. We're lucky. We're in that ninety. Uh, we have ninety percent of patients who are within a half diopter if we're really paying attention to details. But still, that's within a half diopter. And right. A lot of defocus plus or minus a half diopter, uh, and astigmatism just adds to it. So. Uh, you know, the solutions like Rx RxSight, the solutions like uh, Perfect Lens that is uh, looking to dramatically, uh, and of course, the technologies that allow us to change uh, optics of lens implants to swap them out like, right. like your design, uh, are really promising because we can then hope to deliver, you know, a, a whole different level of satisfaction to patients. And to me, that should be one
0: of our goals. Right. Um, Matt Jensen, who uh, is at Vance Thompson Vision yeah. in, in South Dakota. Great you know, thinker. He, one, one concept he brought up um, as we were having a conversation was, you know, the past was all about mass production. You know, being Michigan guys, we know all about mass production, <laughs> automobiles, etc. cetera. Yeah. Um, so we got to see that firsthand. But his thought in looking at the market and where things are going with millennials and, and what the, the generations are looking for now, is really this idea of mass customization so you know for example in the past if you wanted to have a custom tailored suit or shirt you had to go get measured you had to have a a tailor actually create that now we can actually take a photo of ourselves and we can send that photo to a uh, you know some shop and through an app and you get a shirt mailed to you that is custom fit to you so it's this idea of mass customization and everything is about you, and it's getting things really spe- specified to your you know, design and, and what you want. I think that's kind of where things are going with, with refractive. You know, you look at eye design, and you look at topo-guided yep. uh, LASIK, and you look at these other things that are, that are happening in the LASIK world. It's really more personalized. Um, and then with the IOL side, exactly what you said. With RX site and perfect lens and some of the other options, it's still mass... Um, it's still providing a, a product to the masses, right. but it's able to fine-tune and customize in a way that was unthinkable, you know, five or ten years ago. I um, agree with you. And uh, surely, it's
2: not going to appeal to every practice, uh, at least not initially, but... Uh, the kind of results that you're talking about there are even better than LASIK-like. You know, we, we talk about LASIK as being uh, so highly precise, cataract surgery is at a level below, and that's why we don't uh, have quite the adoption with, uh, with premium technology. Well, this kind of premium technology is very hard to ignore and I think will be adoptable by almost every practice, whether you're high volume and, you know, sort of uh, low touch or, or the opposite. And so it's surely going to come. It's already approved, and right. uh, even better, you know, versions of it will evolve, uh, taking into account higher order aberrations and multifocality and all sorts of uh, things that really we just don't think about because they're not available to us right now.
0: Right. What other things do you feel like are coming down the pike, either with practice management or other refractive technologies? I'm not sure if you're dabbling in MIGs at all. Yeah. Where do you feel like the refractive cataract surgeon is heading uh, in the next five to 10 years?
2: Well, I'd like to see us uh, really get rid of eye drops as another very big picture uh, goal. And we're taking big steps in that direction. Just this year, we had the approval of iPoint's uh, DexaQ, right. uh, which of course is an injectable dexamethasone uh, depot that goes in the uh, ciliary sulcus and then dissolves slowly. Uh, and and the data on that
0: looks fantastic. Yeah, it's
2: terrific data. You know, The rates of, of pressure spikes, the rates of issues with um, uh, you know, non-controlled inflammation, just not an issue. Uh, and uh, ocular therapeutics with uh, Dextenza has very similar results. Really, no greater pressure spikes with their device than uh, you know than t- typical patients uh, right. who are treated with steroid. Um, in the case of ocular therapeutics, it's a punctal depot. Uh, it right. goes in the punctal uh, lower punctum, kind of like a uh, dissolvable plug does. And so we've basically eliminated steroid drops right there.
0: Right, um, and yeah. I was part of that trial as well. Okay, And yeah. it, it was so it was really amazing to see the patients. Um, With that, I mean, not only did I feel like the inflammation was so well controlled, but having a punctal plug, their ocular surface, you know, you're not giving those, you're not giving drops with as many drops with with preservatives, you're plugging, you know, that plug is nice because it's actually, you know, creating a little more aqueous. So the dry eye post cataract surgery, those patients were actually, you know, some of my happiest patients.
2: I agree. You know, one of the commonest things we've learned from MD Backline, the patients complain about when you ask them, what did you like about your surgery, what did you not like, is the eye drops, is that you have to take so many eye drops for such a long time. It's a very confusing prospect for people. And let's remember, the average patient is, uh, you know, 70 years old, 69 years old. Uh, And so they're, you know, they got a lot of other health issues that they're dealing with in many cases. Not everybody has perfect memory. And uh, it's difficult. Uh, I, I don't think I could take drops consistently four times a day.
0: I, I totally agree. Just the compliance, the confusion, the conversation. Um, if we can take that conversation out of really the patient's hands and we can take care of it at the time of surgery, there are so many improvements. We will probably see a dramatic overall reduction in CME because personally, I think most CME is probably, I'm not trying to blame the patients all the time because sometimes, you know, we get some inflammation that's, that's, that's real, but I think it may a lot, a lot of the times be either um, a, a um, dose that is, you know, when you don't shake up the bottle and yeah. you've got predacetate, your dosing can be all over the place or they're not taking it or they're taking it intermittently. And yeah. so I think there's a lot to, that we can uh, do for patients if we you're just right. take care of the time of surgery. You're right. It's,
2: uh, it's impossible to know exactly what
0: you know, amount of that is
2: being caused by, by drops until we substitute something that doesn't depend upon the patient.
0: Right. Exactly. Uh, so
2: We'll learn, uh, soon learn what uh, the, the real rate of, of CME is. And of course, non-steroidals play a role too. We're, we're moving toward having non-steroidals that can be uh, delivered by drug. I'm very excited about on the antibiotic side that the ASCRS is now undertaking a study to uh, kind of propel the effort to get a um, you know an FDA approved um, antibiotic that's intracameral approved so that we can uh, make that part of practice without using a compounded product right uh, for a lot of you know about half of uh, um, US eye surgeons report that they're concerned about using any compounded product for their patient that's that's reasonable I, I worry myself about that right. if uh, uh, as much as I, I think there are some really responsible and and uh uh, highly effective uh, compounding pharmacies. Imprimis comes to mind, is doing a great job. Yeah, ocular, um, ocular uh, science also doing absolutely. a great job. Uh, very well respected and a, a great track record. But, you know, ultimately, uh, the physician takes responsibility. If there's any side effect or complication and you're challenged with uh, the fact that you used a non-FDA approved uh, version of a drug, uh, it's pretty hard to defend yourself. So <clears throat> a lot of us would love to see an FDA approved antibiotic that we can inject. So that that makes uh, to me makes the ASCRS study very exciting, and uh, you know I think we're we're just really a, a couple of years away from being able to approach uh, truly dropless cataract su- surgery using on-label FDA-approved products.
0: I think that's that's something that we need to all make uh, all of our sincerest efforts to to make happen. So, John, any parting words? Any final thoughts on what you're looking forward to at this academy?
2: Oh, it's always fun to see friends. You know, the yeah. Academy is just such a great meeting because everybody's here yeah. from industry and all some specialties. So It's one big family uh, reunion. It is it, it is like summer camp. That's you know? right. Once a year, you get together with all the friends you don't often see. So, That's right. I uh, hope you enjoy it. It's. Uh, I, I'm really honored to be part of your podcast, and thank you for inviting me.
0: Thanks to Dr. Hovanesian for providing us with his insights on the latest technology in ophthalmology. Next, we'll talk to Dr. Goldman about a range of topics, and can't wait for you to hear that conversation. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome the one and only hilarious David Goldman. Uh, Dave and I have known each other for a number of years we actually met during Durazol speaker training you may or may not remember this I do. and uh, we have had probably more laughs than is uh, legally allowed since that time so Dave thank you so much for coming back you're a repeat guest off the grid I'm so excited to get some of your perspectives on where you're at in your practice new IOL technology and we're just gonna see where the conversation takes us
1: sure sounds great
0: so, um, let's, just, let's just start from the beginning. Um, I guess in the, in the not too distant past, you started a private practice and have been able to grow that to, I mean, a pretty impressive volume. And as we were talking, um, I guess, over the past couple of days, I realized that you have, you're just about to add a new partner. I think it's a really great benchmark when you think about not only going out on your own uh, to, to make a nice successful practice for yourself, but you've actually have recently gone through the process, that growth process of, hey, is it time to add a new partner? So before we, we're kind of going to go all, all over the place. But I really want to know what went into that thought process
1: of, man, it's time for me to add capacity. I don't think I maybe can do it all on my own at this point. Sure. So. You know, I I was very fortunate, and um, I know last time we talked about what I thought some of the the secrets were to practice success, and and I've seen this over and over again when I visited other practices that were successful, is that those practices that take really good care of their staff um, and have a very family-style environment tend to be the ones that grow. The patients feel that, feel good energy, and if you're giving good ethical care, The word of mouth more than any other form of advertisement is going to really be what grows the practice and i think that's been behind the the growth of of the uh, the practice that uh, i started once i left academics in terms of adding another partner it was really serendipity i'd already had an optometrist uh, when things started to get a little bit busy um, but always bringing on Uh, Another ophthalmologist, you know people would say it's it's like a marriage and uh, Or even more than a marriage because you and sometimes spend more time with your partner at work than you do actually with your spouse or significant other so For me it was it was a really hard decision. I knew at some point I had to pull the trigger uh, But wasn't sure when and I had just been happy to have a conversation with uh, in this case. It was dr. Mark Milner who's a, a good friend of mine I've very strong mutual respect developed over many years of working together on several projects. Yeah, He's fantastic. And, um, he, I mean, absolutely. He, uh, he was asking me about some potential job opportunities cause he was thinking about, uh, moving. And, um, and then I just sort of offhandedly mentioned how I might be, um, looking to hire someone in the next couple of years. And he said, Oh, well, you know, I certainly love to work with you. And I kind of paused and said, well, let me, let me look at the, the numbers and see if it makes sense to bring another person now. And, uh, in, in those next few days, I was inundated with so many patients that I was uh, actually a little bit miserable that I thought, you know what, I, I think I'm ready now. And I've seen different scenarios where especially practice consultants will come into a practice and say, and this happened to me actually very early on in my career when I was finishing my training, where I looked at a practice that was interested in hiring me, brought in a, a very well-known practice consultant who spoke to the practice and said, you know what, you guys aren't ready to hire another person. Uh, don't hire this guy. Um and I think that's completely the wrong way to go. I think even if you're not super busy and this is all relative, but if there's an opportunity to hire someone who's an all-star in this case, you know, I think, uh, Dr. Milner is absolutely, uh, you know, an all-star, uh, very well recognized in dry eye and cornea and external disease. And, uh, and even if I wasn't at capacity yet, I know that if I bring him into my practice, he irrespective of what I'm doing, is going to build an incredibly busy practice. So I think there are other factors you have to look into. But again, it's someone who I think is going to match with everyone in the practice. I think it's someone who's going to keep that same philosophy about you know just giving good care, taking good care of the patients, taking good care of the staff. I've seen very different models where physicians will bonus their staff based on hitting certain productivity measurements. This is another big thing that consultants will discuss is compensating them for more conversions to multifocal lenses, for example. But I think that creates this environment where technicians will cherry-pick the healthier patients because they want to convert the patients to the multifocals, and then there's animosity between technicians. And so in my practice, there's basically a pot of money at the end of the year, and we divide that amongst the staff, and they know that. and so. Everyone is working together towards the same philosophy. It's not just my surgical counselor who may discuss the benefits of a toric lens, but when the patient's checking out, they may ask the front desk person a question, and they'll reiterate that they think, you know, correction of astigmatism is helpful. And they're knowledgeable about ocular diseases, you know, as the billers are and everybody else. So it really helps to create this kind of universal, uh, happy environment with everyone focused on a common goal.
0: Well, it's, it's exactly what you, the last thing you said is, is something I was going to reiterate. It's really about establishing alignment in your practice. Not only from you know, the front office staff to your you know, back office staff, technicians, etc., but also bringing someone into your practice who's going to be aligned with your goals. And I, I 100% agree with what you were saying. When it's t- when it's time, when you can finally convince yourself that it's time to add another person, or a consultant will tell you it's time to add another person, it's probably too late. You know, it's probably uh, you should you really should be looking probably a little bit ahead of your actual need because it's not just about plug and play. You know, ophthalmologists, optometrists, it's not like cogs in a wheel. It's it's a very delicate balance and and. Uh, it is like a marriage. You really need to find someone who you're gonna, j- you know, drive with not just um, from a practice standpoint, but personality wise, and um, and also like you mentioned, you know, Mark Milner, you know, a Mark Milner doesn't just come in off the street every day. So when you have an opportunity to get an all star into your practice. Not only you know probably in a practice that's that's flourishing can you you know you probably have the capacity, but think about what they're going to bring to the practice, not just what you're going to be giving up. Absolutely, um, and I think that this is a, a really unique scenario. But I've heard this time and time again from other folks who, as I've interviewed people throughout time. You know, good surgeons usually can find. Um, a, you know, find a job somewhere because someone will recognize their talent and willing uh, to sort of roll the dice on them. So I think that's absolutely fantastic. Switching gears a little bit, just from practice management over to the technology side. Uh, one thing we're focusing on a little bit on in this episode is new IOL technology. Um, and and uh, that may seem you know like I've got a dog in this fight, and I do a little bit. But um, I'm just curious, as you are, are looking at the landscape of all the technologies that are coming. You know, we've been talking for years about, you know, accommodating lenses, and we've had various iterations that have sort of come into the market perhaps or almost come into market. Uh, we've got electroaccommodative lenses, we have multi-component lenses, uh, we have light adjustable and laser adjustable lenses. What where do you think we're gonna be in 10 years from now? I mean, you're you're having conversations with patients all day long right now about the options that are there. Um, I'm sure we both have opinions about where technology could be improved. But I guess I'll ask a two-part question. What excites you now, you know, current technology or, or technology that's very close to coming to market? And
1: look at the crystal ball. Where are we at in 10 years or 15 years from now? What do you think we'll be doing? Sure. So I would say you know, of the current IOLs on the market now, uh, I'm most excited about the Restore Active Focus Lens. This has been a real game changer in my practice because it's working for the patients that want multifocal lenses. And these are typically the post-LASIK or younger cataract surgery patients that want to function without glasses. For And their needs are iPads and iPhones and computers. They're not reading the Wall Street Journal. They need that intermediate range And the fact that I can put this lens in and not have to worry so much about glare and halo complaints has been a complete game changer. The patients come in, they have, as long as they have realistic expectations, we can almost guarantee those expectations get hit every single time. Um, As far as, as future technology, you know, one of the questions patients always ask me is, Hey doc, you know, they had cataract surgery 10 years ago, any chance I can swap out my lens and, and get a new one put in and, you know, we tell them, you know, unless you develop macro generation and need an implantable telescope, that's probably not a great idea. But, uh, but in all seriousness, I think, for example, your, your invention will be a great addendum to what we have out there. So we can say, yes, actually, we can exchange it. I think, uh, obviously, the pan-optics lens that's coming out soon is also going to be excellent to offer trifocal vision. Going forward into 20 years, I think we will have a true full range of vision lens of, out there. In the meantime, the most exciting technology coming forward is probably the light-adjustable lens from RX I think it takes all the extra elements out so for example you no longer need femtosecond laser you no longer need aura you no longer need to be on the most uh, accurate optical biometry device anymore because if you miss the mark a little hyperopia a little myopia a little astigmatism or even a little spherical aberration that you want to titrate one way or another you can do it all with that lens and you can effectively guarantee a 2020 or better outcome every single time and it's the fact that it's a premium lens also makes it very uh you know a very financially viable option for all practices so uh that's probably the most near future uh technology coming that i'm excited about
0: yeah when i look at the landscape and i gave a talk at ois yesterday and yesterday and went through uh, a little bit of this uh, was there essentially is a different risk category and reward category for different lenses so you have the low low risk low reward so I would say monofocal uh, lenses would be, you know, low risk, low reward. We're going to make most people happy, but could they be happier? We'll never know <laughs> because we set a pretty low bar for ourselves. And you know, most patients do fine. We give them glasses, and and that's okay. It kind of takes a lot of pressure off the surgeon to deliver on that. And then you kind of jump up in, into the multifocal area of high risk, high reward. So. There, there are going to be some patients who really, really love their vision with multifocal lenses because they, you know, can adapt to the the, the changes. So they get good distance vision, good near vision, and their brain can sort of tune out the the uh, other aberrations. Um, but, but the new category that I'm really kind of even more excited about, and it it, it kind of fits into the restore uh, or the active focus. Um, and, and Symphony EDOF lenses, maybe even the, um, the IC8 lens that's being developed by Acufocus and, and even some of the laser technologies or light adjustable lens. It's kind of this new category if you're thinking about a, a chart, you know, sort of in this new quadrant, which is high reward, low risk. So you can easily implant this technology, Um, and the chance the patient is going to be unhappy is very very low and the chance that you're gonna be able to make them thrilled and they're gonna be really happy with their range of vision or, or quality of vision really goes up and so I really see the market consolidating around the idea not only of like adjustable and exchangeable lenses but really giving surgeons and patients options where the risk profile has decreased and the opportunity for increased range or clarity has really uh, gone up. I mean, would you agree with that? Absolutely, 100. percent So um, another another topic we've recently been talking about is MIGS, and and I think that it's been interesting to see over the past couple of years. Um, I guess maybe I was just naive. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't. I didn't have my eye on the ball as much. But MIGS to me, it just seems like it has exploded, and the opportunity that we have. Um, to have a simple conversation with a patient who has a concomitant disease process along with cataracts, you know, glaucoma, um, that is a real, that is a potential game changer. And I've, I'm just very interested. Where do you see the
1: future of MIGS going? And tell me a little bit about MIGS in your practice. So, you know, as a, Ophthalmologists, like it's hard to say if I was really an early adopter or a late adopter because I know for for years, uh, colleagues uh, Jay Parak and others would come to me and say, you know, you're missing the boat. And I think the 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 real change was when I was told you're doing your patients with glaucoma disservice by not offering them this because it's such an easy thing to do at the time of surgery and give them so much benefit. And now fast forward, now. I think my happiest patients are those patients that I've performed cataract surgery on that postoperatively forget about their vision, that they no longer need glaucoma drops anymore and they don't need the burden either financial or just quality of life of having to deal with these drops all the time. So that's been terrific. And obviously there's, multiple MIGS devices out. It's definitely the hot topic here at Academy for the anterior Segment Surgeons. I see the future of that much like the future of these uh, premium intraocular lenses where we're gonna get more and more impressive drops in intraocular pressure with with a lower uh, risk profile. And uh, and I do think as they continue to develop, we're gonna see glaucoma become much more of a surgical disease um, rather than using uh, pharmaceutical drops.
0: Well, and that's that's been the old paradigm, and paradigms die hard. But I think that we are in the beginning of seeing a revolution where uh, optometrists and ophthalmologists are looking at mild to moderate glaucoma, or even moderate plus. You know, when it, when we get to just severe disease, I think it's pretty easy to say, hey, let's let's send you to a glaucoma specialist for a filtering surgery. And you know, I think that severe has always been surgical, and mild to moderate has always been pharmaceutical, and SLT gets. I think way underutilized. I'm a huge believer in SLT. Um, But what I think that MIGS is really doing is it's shifting the conversation of glaucoma from a pharmaceutical disease, pharmaceutically managed disease, to a MIGS managed disease. And, you know, if I were a patient, to be honest, from what I've seen, I I would want to have a MIGS procedure at the time of cataract surgery. Or if I was pseudophagic. And there was, you know, there's some really interesting technology coming out from Sight Science, the Omni Procedure, um, Kahook Dual Blade. You know, there's some other technologies that are out there. You know, I think we're seeing real, this is not just smoke and mirrors. We're really seeing um, some great efficacy from these devices um, and, these, and these procedures. And, you know, I, I would hate to have to take drops all the time and it's nothing against the drops you know these medicines we actually have some new medicines coming out you know that are, that are new categories and rock inhibitors etc but I would much rather have a surgical treatment that just takes care just solve the problem you know we're ophthalmologists you know as cataract surgeons we're all about just let's just solve the problem and, and move on with life and I, I really feel like we're getting there with glaucoma don't
1: you think so I, I agree and, and you look at uh you know the future I mean the reality is there's going to be so much glaucoma in the future, you know, from an epidemiologic perspective that we're not going to be able to handle it all if we keep going at the path we're doing. Glaucoma surgeons are already overburdened. In my area, to get in with a glaucoma surgeon for a TRAB or two is a lengthy process. And, and a TRAB or two, in its own right, it can have all sorts of complications. And, you know, it's associated with, um, you know, maybe a little drop in vision or at the very least some discomfort from the surgery, et cetera. Now we're in a situation where I think the glaucoma surgeons are still gonna be more than busy, but your comprehensive ophthalmologists, even your cornea refractive docs can do something to mitigate how many patients have to get referred out um, and reduce the burden on those glaucoma specialists so they can take care of those patients that have more severe disease. Otherwise, we're gonna be in a situation where there's just not enough uh, supply of physicians to meet the demand.
0: Absolutely. We're, you know, I think the, the analogy I've heard is you know, the general ophthalmologists are gonna be turning down the faucet so that less percentage of patients have to go to see the glaucoma. Maybe the same number of patients end up going see, to see a glaucoma specialist, but relatively speaking, it may be a lower percentage. Uh, and, and hopefully that's, that is the case. We can maybe do a better job of assisting them so we don't get as many patients in, into severe disease. So, Dave, one of the things that we, we really share is a common love for you know, exercise and that sort of thing. Uh, tell me a little bit about what your thoughts are on ergonomics in the OR, ways that you are trying to keep yourself healthy. I think it's recently become a hot topic, um, as we have seen a lot of our colleagues who are a couple decades you know older than us. Either suffering from neck injuries or having to slow down or having you know cervical disc issues, et cetera. What do you do, and how do you approach keeping yourself healthy enough to have a long and productive career?
1: That's that's a great question. You know, and and fortunately, I think ophthalmologists in general, when you look at the statistics, ophthalmologists are actually some of the healthiest of all uh, subspecialists in medicine. And you know, I think there are a lot of factors behind that. You know, we have you know, not as uh, drastic calls, that we have better hours and we, uh, you know, the, the personalities that go into ophthalmology in general. But but that is, I mean, obviously something like orthopedist is another right. totally animal. But um, but in general, um, and, and even when we come to this meeting, my wife's an OBGYN She goes to an OBGYN uh, equivalent meeting of the academy that we're here today. And the patients are, or the, sorry, the physicians are dressed down. They're wearing Birkenstocks. And, you know, here everyone is in suits and, you know, dressed, uh, you know, it's just a different mentality, uh, as far as exercise and, and ergonomics and everything else, you know, this is definitely the bane of existence for every practicing ophthalmologist. And it, it's something that starts right in residency, that you really have to make sure you learn how to properly position the slit lamp at the OR scope. And if you don't make those changes, um, in the beginning, you're gonna be suffering with all sorts of back issues down the road. And and I go through it every single week when I go into the OR, I go in the room, I get to the scope and the bed's not right or the chair is right. not right. And you just know you could just whip through the cataract surgery and go to the next room and not think about it. Uh, but in my head, I'm thinking about the long-term effect. So I take that extra minute and if they've changed the bed or the seat or whatever it may be to make sure it's back where it should be so that I'm properly positioned. As far as exercise, you know, stuff I've got three kids now and now a puppy. So, you know, the ability to, to get out of the house and participate in sports or a gym or thing is, is very limited. So we actually purchased a Peloton, uh, which is an indoor spin bike. Um, I use it a ton, my wife uses it a ton. And the nice thing about having some sort of home workout equipment is that you can just do it at any time. So typically I'll put the kids to bed and then I'll hop on the bike for a half hour to an hour and it gives me that, you know, stress relief. It gives me that, uh, sense of energy back in the morning, helps me sleep better. And, uh, and I know you're, you're a fan of the, the, the technology as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I recently got a Peloton bike as well and, uh, no, no financial interest to disclose, right, same here, yeah. uh, actually they take a lot of my money, but I don't mind because, you know, I, I kind of did the investment analysis and I thought, you know, if, Buying this bike adds another week of productivity to my year or, you know, cumulative life. You know, I've, I've well paid for the, the amortized cost. So I'm really looking at, you know, investing in my own health, in my, in my body, my longevity, those sorts of things. I look at it as an investment of if I can go for another year or two or another 10 years of being active and productive, then the money I'm spending and the time I'm spending right now, keeping myself in shape, uh, it will pay off in spades, and I would really encourage anybody. You know, something you said is actually really key. Having something that's in your house, you know, it, it may be that you're still a member of a gym, and I'm I still belong to a gym, and you know, love working out, and lifting, and that sort of thing. But there's really something about um, having something in your own home because sometimes you just you have to skip the gym. You've got to go get home to pick up the kids, or you've got a project to do, or you've got a phone call, and you know, it just doesn't work out. But having something inside your own home where you can walk down to the basement or somewhere and, and get a 30-minute workout in and you feel great and, you know, you haven't skipped that day, I think it makes a world of difference. Yeah, I
1: actually have mine next to the bed. So even if I want to be lazy, I go to my room. As soon as I sit on my bed, it's just staring at me. Right. And I've got no excuse. And right. so it forces it, me to do
0: it. And I do have to say Peloton is really the coolest uh, exercise technology we actually compete back and forth we get to follow each we other do. and it's a pretty good rivalry I think so uh, it's pretty fantastic Dave any parting thoughts on on where you feel like ophthalmology is right now things that you're excited about things that you've learned I mean maybe we talk a, we've talked a little bit about private equity I know it's another hot topic any fi- any thoughts on, on where ophthalmology is heading in that direction? Maybe? Yeah,
1: I mean, I, I think in ophthalmology, I mean, it's interesting you bring up private equity. I think we are starting to see a lot of acquisitions. It's becoming a bigger thing. I think we're seeing mergers of practices into these larger groups. And I think that's going to continue to happen. I do have fears about that, that ultimately these groups of Ten practices will get sold to become mega groups of thirty practices, and then two hundred practices, and then a thousand practices, and then does that group just get sold to Humana or something? And, and all of a sudden, the whole dynamic changes. You know, for me, I've, I you know I've, I've spoken to private equity. I st- I'm still in talk with private equity, but for the most part, I've never seen a deal with private equity that seems to make sense to me because it always seems like a, a loan almost, and that you're getting a very large sum of money. front, for giving up a portion of your practice, you're losing a lot of control of your practice, and you're effectively paying that money back over many years to this group. And the reality is these investment bankers and private equity groups that are buying these practices, they're in it to make money. So obviously, if they're making money, you may not end up in the right side of the coin in this situation. But going forward, I think ophthalmology, you know, the field itself, I think continues to improve. I love doing what I do. With cataract surgery, obviously, we're fixing people's vision, but now between LASIK, cataract, these glaucoma surgeries, I mean, we're really getting better and better at just curing people of whatever the disease may be, and I'm excited about what the future holds.
0: Fix it and move on, right? That's that's where we really want to be. Dave, thank you so much for taking some time. I really appreciate it. And uh, again, anytime you want to come back on, always welcome. Thank you. Thank you to all of our guests for taking the time to talk to us here at AAO. Listeners, thank you for checking out another live episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. I invite all of you to reach out with any other hot topics you've picked up at the meeting. With that, thanks for listening to Off the Grid Live. Until next time.
1: Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast produced by Bryn Mawr Communications and supported by advertising from Alcon. For a full listing of podcasts for eye care professionals, go to itube.net forward slash podcasts. That's itube, E-Y-E-T-U-B-E dot
2: net.